Well, thank you for allowing me to come this morning. Can everyone hear me well? Good. Maybe I'll yell while I preach so you can hear me even better. That'd be all right. Uh, it is true. Uh, we bring you greetings. My colleague Han Cho and I bring you greetings from uh, a small church just up north. And uh, we bring you greetings from uh, our friend John MacArthur as well. Um, he uh, asks me often where I'm headed to in terms of my travel, and uh, we told him that we were uh, coming down and ministering to a church that may have had uh, some level of difficulty and challenge of late, but that we are here to provide help and love and support and assistance in any way that we can. And isn't it wonderful to know that we have the greater body of Christ to be able to help in time of need? So uh, we're not the saviors, only the Lord Jesus is the Savior, but we know this, God has a word of encouragement for you today, and I hope to be the channel of that encouragement for you, because God is good, and God is good all the time, and God has a plan and he has a purpose for everything that we go through. Did you hear some of the words of that song, The Present Struggles, The Passing Tide? All things will pass into that which God providentially has ordained for His glory and for our good. And so we appreciate the opportunity. It's a privilege and an honor to be with you this morning. Uh, as Dan mentioned uh, my wife Beth and I do have eight children. I heard the gasp in the crowd. It is a large family. We have five girls and three boys. We tried to match them up more evenly, but the girls won out. Uh, we have, um, let's see, Lacey Beth, Lance Benjamin, Logan Bradley, Lindsey Brooke, Lauren Brittany, Lucas Brady, Lexa Bridget and Lisa Berea. That sounds like um, a foolish consistency, doesn't it? Well, there's a little bit of wisdom toward that. They are named L and B because they came from, you guessed it, Lance and Beth. You see? My wife said when we had our eighth child, eight is enough, you have my three sons. And uh, I said, well, let's go for number nine. And she said, we can't. I said, why? She said, because we've run out of L and B names. I said, well, let's, let's call this one Last Baby. She said, I think that's better than Lazy Boy, Lima Bean. And I think Lyndon Baines has already been used. That was one of our former presidents, right? President Johnson and uh, even his wife, Lady Bird. So we, we couldn't use those. So we came up with as many L and B names as we could, and then we were done. So that was the Lord's will. So um, they are all doing well. They all profess to know and love Jesus Christ, which is a blessing. Uh, they are age, ages now 25, 24, 22, 21, 19, 18, 16, 14, 13, and that sounds like a blast-off, doesn't it? <laughs> so we love them, appreciate them, appreciate 
They're, they're part of our family, and uh, none of them currently married, so I, I'm not a grandfather as of yet. Uh, if you know of any eligible bachelors or bachelorettes uh, that we could uh, match up with them, I've got a contract in the trunk of my car. <laughs> you could sign them up right now. Um, but we are rejoicing in the goodness of God in our family, and uh, we're rejoicing in the opportunity to share God's Word with you. I know it's hot, and so I'll only be speaking for about two and a half hours. No, I'll speak for maybe an, about an hour. And what I want to do is, if I can just sort of move away from the, the platform a little bit and just talk to you, okay? Can I do that? I mean, it is preaching, even if I'm not behind the pulpit. And what I want to do is to share my heart with you regarding what I think is most needful for you at this time, and that is a glimpse of the glory of Christ. Okay? Fair enough? A glimpse of the glory of Christ. And I want to do that in a way that I think will both encourage you and excite you about the Word of God. And something that you may not have seen so systematically before from the Gospel of John. So if you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the title of the message this morning is The Seven Signs of the Glory of Christ in the Gospel of John. The Seven Signs of the Glory of Christ in the Gospel of John. Now, if I were to outline the Gospel of John very simply, it would be something like this. There is generally seen from Bible commentators and Bible students and theologians two parts to the Gospel of John. In the first part, roughly from John chapters 1 through 11, what we might call the book of signs, signs, S-I-G-N-S, signs, the book of signs. And that's what we're going to be focusing mainly on this morning, is the first part of the Gospel of John where we're going to see these seven specific signs of the glory of Christ in the Gospel of John. And then you have roughly from chapters 12 through 21, the book of glory, the book of glory, because it's going to be John, the Apostle John, taking us inexorably toward the cross where we'll see the glory of Christ displayed even through his humiliation because, of course, we affirm that he did not only die on that cross, but he was raised again on the third day to prove that he was indeed the Son of God, yea, even God in human flesh. And so, with chapter 12 being a bit of a bridge chapter that sort of summarizes what's gone on in chapters 1 to 11 and what preludes will follow in chapters 13 through 21, we have, in a sense, John chapters 1 through 11, the first part, chapter 12, a little bit of a bridge chapter with what's gone before and what will come after, and then chapters 13 through 21. And so that's really what you have in the Gospel of John, real easy to remember. And what John does to facilitate our memory and our education about the glory of Christ in John chapters 1 through 11 is that he gives us seven specific signs, seven tangible signs. And there's a wonderful way for us to look at the entirety of the book of John by looking, first of all, at John chapter 1. So if you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, I'll show you 
the twofold division of the book in one verse. The twofold division of the book of John, which shows both the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ, John 1 to 11, John 12 to 21, is seen for us in John 1:14. Very familiar verse to you, but here it is. John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the humanity of Christ, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He resided with us in his humanity. But not only that, we also, it says, saw his glory. You see, that's the second part of the Gospel of John, the book of glory. The first, the book of signs, we saw his glory manifested in his flesh, in his humanity, and we also saw his glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's a word about his deity. So his humanity, he dwelt among us in his flesh, and his deity, we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Power-packed in one verse is the outline of the Gospel of John. Don't ever forget that. In John 1.1, of course, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's the deity of Christ seen in two marvelous ways, in His humanity and in His glory. His humiliation, but yes, His ultimate glory as the one who was resurrected from the dead to show us that God indeed dwelt in human flesh who was Himself the Son of God, the Son of Man, the glory of God, who is in fact Sovereign Lord. That's the Gospel of John. And what John does so interestingly is if you go to the latter part of the Gospel of John, almost like a bookend to John 1.14, go to chapter 20. You say, well, what's the purpose of the Gospel of John? Here's the purpose of John. Here's the reason he writes. He says in verse 30 of chapter 20, Therefore, many other, what? Signs. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Therefore, many other signs. Now, you're going to find that that's a very interesting word in John 1 to 11. In fact, this particular Greek word, semion, semion, the word for sign, that's going to be very prominent in the first half of the Gospel of John. It's going to be a marker. It's going to be almost as it were John using a Greek word, semion, to outline exactly what he's doing in showing the glory of Christ. So we'll come back to that word, semion. But it's also used here very uniquely in this sense. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. In other words, what John has done 
is only give us selected signs out of the many signs that Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples to show his disciples who he was, both God and man. And then he says, here's the purpose of the reason I've written this book as I have. Verse 31, but these, these what? These signs, this book has been written so that you may what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ. We will say Jesus Christ as though Jesus is his first name, Christ is his last name. That's okay, but what John really means is this, Jesus the Christ. The Greek word Christ is the Hebrew concept Messiah, right? He's Mashiach, he's Messiah, he's the Christ, he's the anointed one. I've written this book to show you so that you might believe through these signs that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life, eternal life, in His name. I would hope this morning, in a, in a crowd this size, in a congregation this large, that not every one of you truly is a believer. Even though you may profess to be a believer, it may be that even this morning, and I, was, I would praise God for this, that you would come to believe in this only begotten Son of God, Jesus, full of grace and truth, the Son of God, and that by believing in these signs that we're going to go over, you might have eternal life today, now, in His name. That would be wonderful. That would be the, the ultimate end of all preaching. That would be giving John himself, the apostle, the greatness of the joy. For did he not say in one of his epistles that I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth? be no greater joy for us and for the leadership of the church here to say there's no greater joy than having people as a result of the preaching of Jesus Christ walk in the truth. And so that's what my aim is. This is what John's aim is for this book, and we're going to see that. Now, one other thing. Look at chapter 21, the last two verses. This is marvelous. Remember when I said from John's own words that many other signs Jesus also performed, John 20, 30? Notice what he says about verse 24. This is the disciple, referring to himself, who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, not just his signs, which, by the way, we'll find out that signs aren't just miraculous occurrences. Many of them are, but signs for John in his epistle, as opposed to the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, signs don't just mean the miraculous. Signs just don't mean miracles and wonders. Signs are all the words of Jesus, all the works of Jesus, and including the signs of Jesus, including the miraculous. And so what he says is the totality of Jesus' life, all that he did, all that he said, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which... If they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Now that, my friends, is an amazing man. That if 
all the world and all the books of the world, even today, would not even contain the truth, the reality of the writings, of the impact of the word and of the works, yea, even including the signs of Jesus the Christ. That's the wonder of Christ. That's the glory of Christ. And that's what I want to show you this morning, okay? All right, let's go to John chapter 2 because I want to show you the signs, the seven signs of the glory of Christ in the Gospel of John. John chapter 2. Each one of these, by the way, each one of these passages, seven of them that we're going to go over, actually, as a marker, has the word semion, sign, in the text itself, except one, and it's later referred to in a summary statement a couple of chapters later. So it includes that sign as well. And that's our marker. That's our outline. John's giving us his own preferred outline. This is the way we ought to outline the book. John chapter 2. This is that wedding in Cana of Galilee. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? Referring to he and his disciples. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his, what? Signs. Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. John says, this is the beginning of my book. Chapter 1, it's the prelude. It's the introduction. Chapter 2, start of the gospel in earnest. And I'm going to give you the first sign. And he says the first sign is about wine at a wedding. Now, it's a miraculous occurrence to be sure. But what's behind it? What's the purpose of the sign? The, the signs that John talks about and remember, he could have used probably thousands of them, but he only uses seven out of the thousands. What's the significance about this sign? And what's the significance about this being the first sign? Well, remember, John doesn't want us just to know about the sign. He wants us to know about the significance or the purpose behind the sign. So what's the purpose? What's the teaching? What's the moral of the story? It's not just a wonderful wedding, as wonderful as it was. It's not just about the controversy that the wine had run out. 
although controversy it was. It was a social faux pas. It was a problem, and a big one at that. It's not just about Jesus' mother Mary entreating him to help. She knows, undoubtedly, as a result of what we've learned in chapter 1, if you've read it any number of times, that Jesus, even by the testimony of John the Baptist, has begun to enter into his public ministry. He's gone through the wilderness wandering of temptation by Satan. He's come into his public setting. He's begun to teach and to do miracles, do signs. He's begun, even in some sense, to alert others especially those whom he's choosing, his disciples, about who he is, little by little, progressively. His, his mother has begun to understand, even from John the Baptist's own testimony, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's beginning, does John the Baptist, not only as the forerunner, but as the proclaimer of Jesus, who he is. He's now saying it publicly. He's seen this this baptism of Jesus, the Father has spoken out of heaven to John the Baptist directly and said, this is my beloved son. John the Baptist is beginning to proclaim it. Yes, there's confusion, but undoubtedly people are beginning, especially this small band of disciples, four in number thus far, to see that Jesus is entering into his public ministry, even though, as he says, my hour is not yet come. So what's so significant about this wedding in Cana of Galilee? Here's the significance. I want you to see it in verse 6. Here it is. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. That's it. That, that's the significance for the sign. That's, that's the whole point. You say, what in the world are you talking about? How could that be significant? That's only sort of a filler for the story, right? No. That, my friends, is incredibly significant. You know what's going on here? Yes, there's a wedding. Yes, they've run out of wine. Yes, Mary is asking her son, Jesus, whom she knows in her heart in so many ways to be the Messiah, She's asking him for help. And even though he says, my hour has not yet come, for the sake of deference toward his mother, he performs a miracle. But it's not for her. It's for a greater purpose. And the greater purpose is this. Here's the point. Here's the sign. What Jesus is doing is showing everybody around him, including his disciples, maybe even especially them at this point, that there is a new thing that's happening in Israel. In fact, it's not simply a new thing. It's a new person, and that is Christ. That's Jesus himself. And what he's doing by changing water into wine, new wine, in fact, the best wine that the head waiter has ever tasted. In fact, he even says to the groom, wait a minute, I think, I think something's been reversed here. Usually what happens at a wedding with the throng of, of hundreds if not thousands in a community, you always serve the good wine first because once they've drunk of the good wine, they're feeling pretty good, right? Then they serve the not-so-good wine when nobody cares. He says what's happened is the reverse. The, the, the good wine that we thought was really good 
was actually first, and now the best wine is coming. What's happening? This is a new thing. This is wonderful. What is it? Here's what it is. The six stone water pots, notice what he says, that were normally set for the Jewish custom of purification. When Jesus says, fill those to the brim, and it's 20 or 30 gallons each, and there are six of them, I'm going to show the Jewish nation that when those water pots are filled to the brim and I miraculously turn that water on the way with the servants taking it to the head waiter with the best wine anybody's ever tasted, that there's a new thing in Israel. And here's what's new. It's me. It's the person behind the sign. It's the person who's saying, you know, all of those Jewish rites of purification, you know, all the Jews and their rites and their regulations and their laws and their mandates and their statutes, there's a new thing in Israel. And all of the old, all of the law is now giving way to me the fulfillment of the law, the end of the law. You know what we could call this first sign, as we'll call all the others? This is something new. Let's call this new wine. New wine. Jesus the Christ is creating out of the old forms of Judaism a new wine that signifies that Jesus himself is God in human flesh and that as God in man, he's creating a new thing and there's no longer Judaism of old but Christianity in the new, and it is in the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. That's what he's saying. He's not just turning water into a wine at the behest of his mother. Don't stop there. That's only, that's only the, the window dressing for what he's doing to show the Jews that new wine means new life in Christ. That's what he's talking about. You say, I'm not sure I'm convinced. All right? Let's go to the second sign. Second sign. It actually happens one verse later. John 2.12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things, for clearing the temple? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, 
It took 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Stop there. What sign is this? Now, this is one of those that it's not a miraculous sign like turning water into wine, but it's a sign nonetheless. It's a work of Christ. In fact, it's a premeditated work of Christ. He had to spend time making that scourge of cords, didn't he? Yeah, he had to spend time doing it. He was righteously indignant. Why? Because of what he found. He had been going to the temple since his earliest days, right? Remember back when he was 12? Went to the temple was even engaging the, the Jewish fathers in dialogue, and everybody was amazed. Where, where did this young man get his teaching? Who is he? You remember he was in such dialogue that his family actually left without him, right? They had to go back and find him. So he'd been going to the temple for many years. And when he went to the temple on this occasion, what did he find? He found a place of merchandise. Apparently, according to Jewish history, in the temple... It used to be that these money changers for these Jewish people were coming from all the outlying areas, right? Even from different countries. And they would all have different kind of currency. And they would have to have the right kind of currency, even the best kind of currency, to give their temple tax. And so they had to have money changers. It was a legitimate issue. And then they also, if they were coming from large, long distances, they wouldn't always have their animals with them to sacrifice. And so they had their money, and they exchanged that for the opportunity to pick up their animals for which they would then sacrifice, and then they would have the currency exchange. And apparently for many, many years, perhaps even hundreds of years, they had all of this going on, not on the temple side itself, but along the Kidron Valley. But apparently through the years, it moved this this currency exchange and this selling of the animals, doves and sheep and oxen, right on the temple mount itself, right at the court of the Gentiles, which undoubtedly inflamed the person of Jesus because this impeded the process of even the Gentiles and their ability to move in and through this thronging crowd of merchandise to get to the place where they too, even as Gentiles, could worship God, worship Yahweh. And then how difficult would that be? Because next was the court of the women. And then next was the court even of the Jews, even into the very Holy of Holies, where they were not allowed to go except the priest. And what Jesus finds when he comes to the temple at this moment is instead of a place of worship, instead of a place where there's contrition and brokenness and sacrifice and, and Godward worship, it's a place of merchandise. It's a place of business. So that even the Gentiles aren't able to worship God as they would otherwise desire, these God-fearing Gentiles. And so Jesus is mad. He's angry. Not unrighteously so. He's zealous for his father's house. And by the way, when, when he talks about zeal for my father's house, he's, he's talking about God the Father 
as though he has some kind of unique filial relationship. And that just inflamed the Jews because they didn't refer to God the Father like, like you and I do. They had what they thought was such a reverential idea of the Father that, that we're distant. He's so much higher. Uh, we don't call him Father. And Jesus is, is calling this, this place my Father's house. And he's got this burning zeal and the disciples remember, of course, only post-resurrection. That's what John means when he says that in verse 17. They remember Psalm 69.9 where it says explicitly, zeal for my father's house has eaten me up. They remember that. Only later, of course, but they remember it. And so these Jews, especially the religious leaders, they've got their merchandise going. They've got all of this this money changing hands, they got a profitable business, even though the business itself is legitimate. But they've moved it from the Kidron Valley right into the temple area, right into the court of the Gentiles, and it's nauseating to the nose of Jesus. He just can't believe that they've turned his father's house not into a house of prayer and worship and repentance and contrition and sacrifice, but into a house of business. And so he's so incensed. He takes this, this scourge of cords and he just cleans all of the temple out, it says. He says, stop doing this. He's upset. And then these Jewish authorities, notice what they say. Verse 18, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Well, my first answer would be, now it's easy and convenient for me because I'm a Christian, because I've read this, because I know this. Here's the answer. Well, what other sign do you need? The one he just did. He just cleared the temple. Apparently thinks he has the authority. But their answer is, yeah, but we don't know you. I mean, we've heard about you. And here's what we concluded. We've heard about you. We already don't like you. And so what authority do you have to do what you just did? And then Jesus answered very enigmatically. Look at verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, look, look, let's give them a little bit of credit. If, if I had said to you, after seeing Jesus clear out the temple, what authority, and then he says, destroy this temple, and they're standing where? In the temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up again. Would you have understood that? I, I wouldn't have understood that. You wouldn't have understood that. No, nobody would. That's, that's a very enigmatic statement. What does it mean? Well, John helps us, right? He was speaking, parenthetically, about the temple of his body. Do you think they would have gotten that? Do you think they would have understood that? Of course not. I mean, how many years outside of Christ would it take for us to understand the gospel? Do, do we understand the gospel? Do we understand the implications of the destruction or death of Jesus Christ? And three days later, he rises from the dead from that tomb. We don't get that, most of us, at first glance, unless the Lord opens our eyes and unstops our ears. So let's not be too hard on them in that sense. Yes, they're Christ-rejecting, they're unbelieving, and we'll see that progressively move through the Gospel of John. But the bottom line is this. It's a very hard statement for them to grasp. They don't get it. They don't understand. But as we'll see through the Gospel of John... Here's the main reason why they don't understand. They don't understand because they don't want to understand. 
because they are Christ-rejecting, because they are Jesus-rejecting. They don't understand because they don't want to. And Jesus knows that. And he says, nevertheless, destroy this temple, not what we are standing in, not what I just cleared out, but understand this, in three days I will rise again and there will be, like the new wine of Cana in Galilee, a new temple. A new temple. You know what he's saying? Here's where you Jews and some of you Gentiles think you're supposed to go to worship. And that's what the Jews were commanded to do. They were supposed to go there and worship, right? At least once a year, if they could, physically able, multiple times if they could throughout their life. But now he's saying, like he said to the woman at the well, remember the Samaritan? Look, you think you worship here on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, and the Jews think they worship at Jerusalem, that's a mountain, on the mountaintop, at the mountain site. But I'm telling you, I'm coming onto the scene in Israel, and there's a new person, and you will no longer worship a place or at a place. And the Jews certainly were worshiping not at a place, but they were worshiping the place, right? If you ever went to Israel, how many of you have been to Israel? Anybody? One, two, a couple of you? It's amazing. I've been there twice, went with Pastor John MacArthur on those occasions. It was a small, intimate group, about 400. And we went to the Temple Mount. And of course, if you go there, there are, there are armed guards, there are AK-47s, there are Muslims there, there are Jews there. You know it's been taken over, of course, by Islam. There's a little small slice. Uh, there's a wailing wall that's down below. That's with the Jews. That's for them. This, this is a major league guarded place, and it's called a holy site. Well, unfortunately, especially for the Jews, they came to regard the temple itself as not just the place of worship, but what to worship. And Jesus now comes on the scene and says, here, I'm telling you, by my death, this temple, by my death, by my burial, and by my resurrection from the dead after three days, you will no longer, you Jews, worship a place, but you'll worship a person. That's what he told the Samaritan woman in John 4, didn't he? Here, what you think you're worshiping, you're going to worship one day in a new way, in a totally new way. And she says, sir, if you're this guy that's dispensing this living water, well, tell me where I can get the water. And he says, I have it. I, I will give it to you. And she says, sir, we're going to wait for the Messiah. And when he comes, he, he's going to give us this water and he's going to provide this new worship that you're talking about. And he says, I who stand among you am what? I'm he. What a mind blower. You mean, you mean to say that you're the promised one? You mean to say that you're the one who is actually going to replace where we Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim? And it's even going to eclipse even the Jews and where they worship because they worship on Mount Jerusalem, as it were? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, the one who is speaking to you right now, I'm the new worship. I'm the new worship. That's the purpose, my friends, behind that second sign. And the Jews didn't get it at all, right? These Jewish leaders, you know, it's like, I reject that. I don't agree with it. Who are you to come into our temple? 
I mean, this supposed rabbi, this teacher, you're coming into our temple and you're disrupting our place and you're destroying our worship? And Jesus' response is, what you're doing is no worship at all because you're worshiping the wrong God, you're worshiping yourself, and you're worshiping your money, and you're worshiping your business, and you're not worshiping God's appointed one who's actually standing in your midst. So new wine and new what? New worship. New worship. Now, the others, I hope, go quickly, more quickly than the first two, right? Because we got five more to go. But let's say this. Let's introduce this topic. And this is what I hope everyone in this room gets today. There's only two responses to all of these signs, especially these first two. Here it is. You either believe it or you reject it. You either believe that Jesus the Christ is the new wine. That's what he's introducing. That's what he's inaugurating in Israel. You believe that he is the new person to worship, no longer a place. We don't go anywhere. We don't travel to Mecca. We don't go to Jerusalem, right? We don't even go to Garden Grove, right? We worship a person. And you either believe that or you reject that. Now, here's what's amazing. If you're not careful in the book of John, if you're not really careful, you're going to read sometimes the word believe, and you're going to read it about two groups, and they are polar opposite of each other. It's the true believers, even if they're progressing toward greater belief, that's the disciples, right? They didn't, they didn't all get it instantly. They had to progressively get it. And in fact, Peter didn't totally get it until Pentecost, right? Until he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then he began to preach and preach and preach. And you're saying, who lit a fire under this guy? The Holy Spirit. So it's belief and progressive belief. That's one group. And here's another kind of believing that's a sham believing. It's a false believing. And it's these very Jews who say, oh yeah, we, we believe. But Jesus says, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't really. It's not genuine believing. It's not true believing. And here they are. Look at the end of this section. Look at verse 23. That's why I'm saying, if you're not careful, you're going to miss this. Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, the very time that he's clearing out the temple, at the Passover, during the feast, he nails it down for us. Many, many believed in his name. You say, okay, that's the first group. That's, that's the believing group, right? That's the ones who say, hey, I get the sign. I'm on board. I believe. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They're, they're like the disciples who in the previous verse, so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rise it up, raise it up again. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. And now this is a continuation in the next verse. And there are even more who believe. Many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. There you have it. They're all believing. Wait a minute. Look at the next verse. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. That's the many believing in his name. For he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, he knew what was in the heart of man. He knew it. And he knew that this second group were not true believers. 
He knew that. You say, well, if you're not careful, you're going to say, wait a minute. I thought that the book of John itself says that any who come to him, he will in no way cast out. person comes to him and says, I believe. question is, what kind of believing? What kind of believing are we talking about? I believe that that second group are those who were only looking for a sign. Only looking for a Messiah in the form of a person not who was going to come to die on a cross at the hands of the Romans by the Jews themselves and in three days rise again. Jews had no concept of such a thing. They thought when the Messiah was going to come, he was going to be this great military leader. And when he came, he wasn't coming to die. He was coming to take over and undo all the Roman oppression. Right? He was going to come and say, enough with this Roman oppression. Enough for the years and the history of my Jewish people and all of these wilderness wanderings and the Egyptian bondage and the Babylonian captivity and now the Roman, impression, uh, the Roman oppression. This is Jesus who might be that one who comes and we will install him as a human king and he will right all wrongs. He's going to set up his kingdom and the Jews will live happily ever after. That's the kind of king we're looking for. And if this guy can perform the kinds of signs that we want, then we might believe that he's the one. Otherwise, not on your life. Not on your life. And even when Jesus comes later and he gives some hard demands about discipleship, what does it say in John 6, 66? And some of those who were following him, these would-be believers, were following him no more. They left. They deserted. AWOL. They weren't really a part of it. It's sort of like what 1 John 2.19 says. They went out from us because they were not really of us. For if they were really of us, they would have remained with us. But because they went out from us, it is now made manifest that they were not really of us. You see? So be careful about believing in the Gospel of John. All right, third sign. Third sign. This is amazing. John chapter 4. John chapter 4. This is amazing. Remember I talked to you about the woman at the well? Remember I told you about the dialogue that Jesus was having with her? That's an amazing setup for the context of what's happening in John chapter 4. What's the amazing setup? Here it is. Samaritans were called half-breeds, a derisive term. Sort of half-Jew but not full-Jew, right? Intermarriage. And because of that, the Jews hated them. In fact, it's been said that if a Jew was north of Samaria and wanting to get back to their homeland of Palestine, they would walk as a journey completely around Samaria so that they wouldn't even put their feet in the land of Samaria. That's how much they hated the Samaritans. And all of a sudden, in John chapter 4, Jesus finds himself at one of those wells of his forefathers, a well of water, and he actually begins, which is socially taboo, talking with a woman in public. So he's, he's already committed two or three faux pas. He's in Samaria, he's talking to a woman of Samaria, and he's also trying to influence her to worship Yahweh God in the way that Jesus is prescribing. I mean, this is, this is totally a social no-no. 
But notice what happens. She is so impacted that she goes into the city. Look at verse 28. She left her water pot, she went into the city, and she said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They, that is the men, the men of Samaria, they went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. In other words, I'm involved in my evangelistic business. Leave me alone. Food, physical consumption of morsels, that's not my greatest priority right now. My greatest priority right now is the evangelization of the Sumerians. They don't get that. They don't understand that. Verse 33, so the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? You know, he's saying, I've got food that you know not of. And they're saying, well, does that mean he already ate? We don't really understand that. Did someone else bring him some food? Because we, we know he didn't eat. He totally missed it. Jesus, verse 34, said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What is that? The evangelization of the Samaritans, including that woman, including the men of the city. Verse 35, Do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. What in the world is he talking about? What he's talking about is the reaping of the ripe harvest of the Samaritans. In other words, don't trouble me with physical food. I'm about my father's business because the Samaritans need to be saved. This is glorious. That's a great evangelistic text, isn't it? But this is all still set up. You say, how so? Look at this. Verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him. That's Jesus. What kind of belief is this? Is it the first kind or the second kind? Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Talk about social faux pas on steroids. He's staying in Samaria even two more days? Yes, to evangelize these men. They're ripe. They're listening. They're open. Verse 41, many more believed because of his word. Notice, because of his what? His word, not his signs, his word, his word of gospel, his word of good news. He's telling them all about himself. This is amazing. This is conversion. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. Here's their testimony. And know this one is indeed John the Baptist's testimony, the Savior of the world. These half-breeds, they're coming to Christ. You know what John's doing? He's setting us up to show us now the receptivity of the hated Samaritans as over against the people who should be receiving their Messiah. And according to John 1.12, he came to his own, and his own what? Received him not. They rejected him. And John's saying, look, if the Jews won't receive him, he'll go to the Samaritans, and they'll receive him. And he did. And they did. And now he's going to show an amazing thing when he goes back 
to Jewish land. Look at verse 43. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. So he goes back from Samaria into Galilee, Jewish country. For Jesus himself testified, here it is, that a prophet has no honor in his own country. You know what John's doing? He's recording the lips of Jesus as saying, in essence, this. I went to Samaritan. I had this evangelistic revival, this spiritual awakening, and now I go back to the Jews, and I, a prophet, have how much honor in my own home country? None. None. No honor. It's a prophecy, and it's just about to be filled. This prophecy just about to be fulfilled right here. Verse 45. So when he came to Galilee... The Galileans received him. Oh, there you go again. Oh, but see, they received him. That's the second kind of believing. That's that second kind of sham believing. You say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't John 1.12 say, but as many as received him, to them he gave the privilege or the right or the honor of becoming sons of God. It says right there, they received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem. Oh, that's a key. Not his word, not his word, but all the things he what? He did. All they were looking for were the signs. They weren't seeing the significance of the signs, only the signs themselves. They were blind to it. They weren't seeing it. They only saw what he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went up to the feast, going from Galilee up to Jerusalem. Verse 46, Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee. This is now his second sign in Cana of Galilee, third sign overall. That's the place where he made water wine. And there was a royal official son whose, whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down, that is, down from Jerusalem to Galilee and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. This, this man, this man is really hurting. And there's nothing in this text that says anything like this man was presumptuous. This man was anything other than sincere. This man wanted his sick and dying son to be healed by Jesus. He knew something about the signs of Jesus. He knew something about what he'd done. Maybe he was a part of that second group of believing right before where he'd seen some of the signs and he thought, okay, if this Jesus is able to do these signs like turning water into wine... I heard about that. I'm going to meet him on the way, and I'm going to ask him, can you heal my son? He's dying, if not dead. He'd gone from Capernaum, about a four-day stretch there maybe. Maybe he's about sort of uh, three days, or maybe he's gotten all the way, and he meets Jesus, and he says, please, I implore you, heal my son. I think that's sincere. What's Jesus' response? Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Now, folks, I, I don't know about you, but that to me seems like a really strange response. I mean, here's a hurting man. He, he's, he's really in pain. His son is dying or dead. It says in the text, he's at the point of death. I mean, you would think that maybe Jesus would say, I'm, I'm grieving with you at the death of your son. He doesn't say that at all. In fact, it almost looks like if we didn't know that Jesus is perfect, never sinned, always had 100% compassion, 
that Jesus was being rude to him. We know he's not, but, but it almost sounds, unless you people, and by the way, notice where, where it says you, and the translators have added you people. That's a good addition because it's not you singular. It's not you officials son. It's you people, you Jews. Unless you Jews see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. You don't believe the word that I gave like the Samaritans. You just want to see signs. Do another sign for us, Jesus. Nevertheless, because Jesus is intending to do a sign for a greater purpose, he says, go, verse 50, your son lives. Even though he says that's what you people are after, I'm going to do it anyway because there's a greater purpose. You say, what's the greater purpose? Here it is. Here is the greater purpose. Verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. And as he was now going down, that means he was going back on his journey, and he probably got about halfway, and it was probably nighttime, and he had to stop, right? And he probably stayed on the side of the road or found an inn of some kind, and his slaves met him. In other words, they met him about halfway, maybe two days in. He's two days from getting back home, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, yesterday. See, we know that it's the next day because they say, yesterday when, when you were in the place where you met Jesus at about the seventh hour, which is about one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left. Who's that for the sake of? The father, verse 53. So the father knew that it was at that hour, that very time, at the very words of Jesus in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. That is the second sign in Cana of Galilee, third overall, including the clearing of the temple. You say, why do you think Jesus went ahead even though he chastised the man in the beginning, he did the miracle anyway. Why? I think one of the reasons is this. What would have happened to the son, let alone the entire household, if he said, you people only want signs and wonders and no sign will be given you? And he walks away. What happens to the son? He remains dead. And if the son remains dead, what happens to his eternal life? He has eternal death, judgment, hell. Do you see this as the merciful Jesus the Christ? That not only is the official believing Jesus' word, doesn't it say, and he himself believed and his whole household. Wow! The compassionate Christ who allows the Son to be raised from the dead in order for the Father to give his household the truth of the word of Jesus that he, in fact, is God in human flesh. What grace. What grace. In fact, if we call new wine and new worship, let's call this new hope. New hope. See, before Jesus speaks a word of the gospel to us in whatever way 
it comes to us, we have no hope. We will die and we will all be judged forever. But if we get that word of faith from Jesus, then we have new hope. That's what Jesus brings to these very people. New hope. What compassion. Saving the Samaritans and saving some of the Jews. That's that's a wonderful testimony of God's great compassion and grace. The next sign. John chapter 5. I'm hurrying, I'm hurrying, I'm hurrying. John chapter 5, verse 1. Now after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, uh, Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Now skip that little bracketed part, because that's probably not in the best original manuscripts. Verse 5, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been a long time in that condition, I'd say 38 years is a long time in that condition, wouldn't you? He said to him, do you wish to get well? Which seems like an obvious question, right? The guy's been laying there on his pallet for 38 years? By the way, the life expectancy of a Jewish male during this time, probably somewhere in your mid-40s. This man's probably been laying there for most, if not all, of his life. Amazing. Do you wish to get well? Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. I want to, uh, but, but everybody gets into the pool. You say, well, what's significant about the pool? Well, there was some kind of superstition that had raised up that there was an angel that somehow every uh, so often, maybe around the time of the Jewish feasts, stirred the water, and somebody who could get into that pool, somebody who was blind or sick or lame or withered, would get in the pool and would be made well. Now, I think that's just a superstition. I don't think there's any truth to it other than the fact that it could be demonic. And this man somehow believed it. There's nothing in the text that suggests that God was working that way. And in fact, I think I'll show you what's really going on. Jesus said to him, verse 8, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to help you get into the pool. But there's no saving value in the H2O. The saving value is in the person of Christ. And all Christ needs to do, just like with the nobleman's son, the official son, is to speak a word of life, right? Just get up. And instantly, instantaneously, the man's 38-year dead limbs came to life. It's incredible. Who is this man who does these things? Only God could be with him. What's amazing about this is that there are thousands of people. It's at Jerusalem. It's around the time of great worship. There's a throng. There's a crowd. And Jesus says, Get up, take your pallet, and walk. Presumably, walk home. You're a new man. Maybe this is even what we could call this, a new man. Jesus never identifies himself. Never says, I'm Jesus. I'm the one who's healed you. Go and tell everybody that I'm the Messiah. Why does he not do that? How many times in the Gospel of John have you heard this? My hour's not yet come. My hour's not yet come. In fact, we know why Jesus didn't do that. 
because these Jews who aren't real believers, who say they're believers, who say they want Messiah to come, will actually prop Jesus up as the king of Israel prematurely, and they'll try to get him to overthrow the Roman oppression. That's their view. They're not going to believe in a dead, buried, and risen Messiah. That's not what they think. They're going to prop him up. He knows that, so he doesn't even give his name. So then the Jews come, and they ask him, Verse 12, who is this man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus. In other words, they had a further conversation. He asked Jesus, who are you? Or Jesus told him who he was. He gave him an authoritative word. Now, since I've healed you physically, here's your real issue. You need to be healed spiritually. Don't go continue on sinning anymore. Repent and believe in me, Jesus the Messiah. So the man went away. He told the Jews it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Wait a second. Wait a second. Why were they persecuting Jesus? Wouldn't they have otherwise said, we found the Messiah? our long-awaited Messiah. He's the Jewish answer to our nation. Here are four signs in a row. We've been looking for signs. Here are four of them. I don't get this. I, come on. They're persecuting Jesus because they're incensed about him. They don't like him. They don't like anything about him. They are threatened by him. He threatens their money-changing business. He threatens their authority. He threatens the leader's relationship and respect and reputation with the Jewish nation in general. Everything is to not like about Jesus according to them. And so, they charge him with two things. By the way, this Jesus that healed you, man, and they haven't talked to even Jesus himself at that point. He did something very wrong What's that? Heal a man? No. Heal a man on the Sabbath. Now, again, you and I, we're, we're, we're mostly a Gentile audience. We don't think like Jews. But these particular Jews, they had been commanded by God, Old Testament, to not work on the Sabbath. So at, at first blush, they're saying, wait a minute, he's working on the Sabbath. And of course, for years, the Jews had grappled with the idea, well, what does it mean to work on the Sabbath? And you know, they'd come up with all kinds of man-made rules and regulations about what constitutes work on the Sabbath. And guess what one of them was, which is exactly why Jesus did this sign. They said, it is unlawful for anyone to have their bed, their pallet, to roll it up, to put it under their arm, and to walk home. That's a violation of the Sabbath law according to them. Not according to God, not according to the Old Testament. You're not going to find that there. So, Jesus is now a lawbreaker. You know what Jesus does? Look two chapters later, chapter 7. Look at what he does. This is amazing what he says. Verse 21. Jesus answered these same Jews about what he'd done with that man 38 years in paralysis. I did one deed. That's the deed he's referring to. I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, I'm going to answer your law-breaking charge. 
For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. You know what he's doing? He is, he is showing them their own contradiction about observing the Sabbath law. Here's what he says. A Jewish boy, all Jewish males, were to be circumcised on what? The eighth day. All right, what happens if the eighth day falls on a Sabbath? Well, you got a, you got a real dilemma. You got a command, circumcise on the eighth day, and you got the Sabbath where you're not supposed to work. So what do you do? Here's what Jesus said. Here's what you've been doing for millennia. If the kid was born and on the eighth day it's a Sabbath, you go ahead and circumcise him. It's not considered work. It's considered obedience to the law. And since there is a law about Sabbath, but no law about not circumcising on the Sabbath, go ahead. Do it. It's not a violation of God's law at all. And now what he's saying is something like this. And you get after me for healing a man? Look, this is far more loving, far more gracious, far more wonderful than circumcising a Jewish male on the eighth day. This is raising a man up who for 38 years hasn't been able to walk. And you're trying to say to me that I'm a lawbreaker because I healed him on the Sabbath? Please. Do not judge according to appearance, verse 24, but judge with righteous judgment. Do you not have any compassion yourself on this 38-year paralyzed man? You can almost hear some of these other statements coming through. How many times have you Jews walked by him? Probably some of you are even older than he is, and probably some of you, probably even some of you religious leaders you yourselves have walked by that man for 38 years. Have you ever prayed for him? Have you ever asked God to heal him? And if, if a would-be Messiah comes along and he might be the one and his name is Jesus and, I, and I've got my doubts about him, some Jews might say, but here's what I saw. I saw a man walking by him seeing him in his condition. And it says, by the way, he knew, Jesus knew he'd been in that condition, probably because of his omniscience. He knew very well he'd been sitting there for 38 years not being able to walk. And in the greatest compassion and in the marvelous of signs, he says after 38 years, get up, take your pallet, and walk. It doesn't matter if it's the Sabbath. By the way, he also says in direct answer in John chapter 5 to them, you don't have any problem with my father working on the Sabbath, do you? He upholds the entire world on the Sabbath. Aren't you guys glad that come next Saturday the world is not poofed out of existence? You know why? Because the Heavenly Father is working on the Sabbath. And Jesus, making himself equal with God, says this, and I myself am working, which puts him on a par with the Father who's working on the Sabbath. You know what their response is? Oh, I get it. He is the Messiah. We fall down. We worship him because he's saying, I and the Father are one. He actually does later say that in John 10, 30, right? I and the Father are one. They say, he's the Messiah. Is that what they say? No. 
you're going, these knuckleheads, why can't they believe? Why can't they get this? Because they don't want to. Because they reject him, all of him, everything about him. And here's what they do. Instead of rejoicing that Messiah has come on the scene and that he's healed a 38-year man in his paralysis, what do they do? Here's what they say. Oh, now, in addition to law-breaking, you making yourself out equal to God and calling him your father, you're committing the ultimate capital crime, and that is blasphemy because you make yourself out to be equal with God. My friends, that is absolutely the opposite response that you should have at that moment. So much so that later, doesn't it say that he's doing all these wonderful works, including some of these signs, and they say what he does, he does by Beelzebul, the devil. That's why Jesus says, you can't be saved. I've given you everything for you to believe. You cannot be saved because you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You think I've blasphemed God by making myself equal with God? You've committed blasphemy against God because you say that my works done by God through the Holy Spirit are actually the works of Satan. That's the unforgivable sin. I mean, this is an amazing sign and they don't get it. You know what John is doing through the outline of his book? Sign, belief by some, true belief, sham belief by others. Sign two, belief by some, disciples, small group, maybe some of his brothers progressing, maybe Mary progressing, others, looks like they believe, not real belief. Some who it might look on the outside like they're not really believing, they're not really getting it, but they do, and progressively so. And some who look on the outside like they really get it, and they don't. I mean, it's just topsy-turvy. It's, it's totally upside down. And he says, I'm not done. I'm not done. Look at John 6. And I hope I'm done soon, because I'm way out of time. But isn't it fun to study the Bible? Isn't it fun to know what John is getting at? John chapter 6. This is amazing. Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Large crowd followed him because they saw the what? The signs he was performing on those who were sick. He went up to the mountain. There he sat down with his disciples. It's the Passover. The Feast of Jews was near. It's coming around to another cycle. Jesus lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd coming to him said, Philip, what are we going to buy? you have any bread so that these may eat? And he was saying this to what? To test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. You see, Jesus knew what he was intending to do, and when John captures these seven select signs, he knows what he's doing when he selects this particular sign. And Philip answered and said, well, I've got a little bit of money. Another disciple says, well, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves, verse 9, two fish, but how can we feed all these people? Jesus says, have them sit down. What does he do? He miraculously prepares out of five barley loaves and two fish the feeding of 5,000. That's a sign. That's Messiah. How could you not? How could you not believe him? So they gathered even up the pieces that were left over after the 5,000 were filled. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And you say, there it is. That's the first category. That's the ones who may not look like they always believe, but, but they're really believing and they'll believe even more later. No, no, that's the second group. That's the second group. 
Why? Verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they, they the ones who were saying this is truly the prophet who has come into the world, they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. See, they wanted to prop him up. That, that's, that's not real believing. That's, you've missed it. You've missed what I've really come to do. It's amazing. That's the next sign. And Jesus explains to his own disciples and to even some of the crowd. Verse 24, the crowd saw Jesus. They went to where he was. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. In other words, you seek me not for the purpose of the signs, not for the significance of the sign itself, but you search for me because you wanted your bellies filled. See, that's not true believing. That's not true discipleship. Do not work for the food which perishes, that's the food that goes into your stomach, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him the Father God has set His seal. What kind of work is that? Verse 29, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Well, I, well, I thought it says they received Him. I thought it says they believed in Him. No, it's the wrong kind of believing. They don't really believe Him. But He's saying, I want you to really believe. Believe in Me, not just fill your belly. In fact, we could call this New food. New food. What is it now? New wine. What's the clearing of the temple? New temple. What's the third one? What is it? Hear me. What is it? New hope. Very good. What's, what's the fourth one? New man. New food. What kind of new food? What does he say? Verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Who is that true bread? Christ. He, he's the new temple. He, he's the true temple. He, he's the new wine. He, he's the new bread. He's the new food. He's the new man. He's new hope. See what John is doing? He's everything. Christ is everything. He's the new everything. Don't settle on the temporal. Don't settle on the short term. Don't just think about how you're going to feed yourself. Don't just be like those Jews in the wilderness who's looking for the manna and really doesn't like the manna. Look for Christ, who's the true manna. Here's another one. John chapter 9. This is the man born blind. For the sake of time, I won't read the whole thing, but I'll just say it like this. You know that that text very well. A man is blind and he's been blind from birth and when they ask Jesus, why has this man been, blind, been born blind from birth? And he says, it's not his sin and it's not for any other reason other than this, for the glory of God. You say, what kind of glory? What Jesus is about to do. And what does he do? Heals him of his blindness. What's the point of the story? What's the significance of the sign? Here it is. Significance of the sign is that when he goes back to the Jews and they question him thoroughly and even they go back to his parents and even his parents, as precious as they may seem to be and as wonderful as they may appear to be because they're ecstatic that the son that they saw come out of the womb was born blind and now he sees and they got to be happy like the nobleman's son. He was brought back to life. Surely now even his parents are going to say, look, 
Even if this takes us completely out of the synagogue, we're going to worship Jesus because that son who was born blind to us has now been given sight. Let's call it new sight. What do they do? What does the Bible record in John 9? They wouldn't even honestly answer the Jewish authorities' questions for fear that they themselves as mom and dad would be put out of the synagogues. Folks, that's not true believing. That's not true believing. And you know who else is not true believing? The very Jewish authorities who should otherwise be saying, look, we know this guy. I mean, we're acting like we don't because we're asking questions. But we really know the guy's been in our community. Even, even his parents have testified now before us that he was born blind and now he sees. In fact, we've even brought this guy before us and he's come a couple of times even. And he says, boy, isn't it amazing that even you don't believe and I'm telling you, this man, by my own testimony, healed me. You don't want to believe in him too, do you? Sarcastically? No. That's, that's that second kind of believing. You know that, what that might be likened to in a, in a congregation like this? Somebody who's come here a long time. Somebody who may have professed outwardly, verbally, their profession of Christ. Somebody who says... I like the Bible stories. I may even like some of the gospel accounts about Jesus and his miracle working power. I actually even pray. I ask God to get me out of jams. I ask God to give me greater income. I even give some of my money away. I'm pretty philanthropic. But guess what? In all of those attributes that I've just described, none of those things in and of themselves have anything to do with true believing because how many pagans in our own country and around the world do those very same things? Give money, walk aisles, pray prayers, sign cards, give, give half their estate away. doesn't make them any more believing at all. What constitutes true belief is believing in the significance of these signs, what the signs portray. New wine new temple, new limbs, new hope, new food, new sight. And one more, John 11, Lazarus, Lazarus. This is, this is so amazing. The Bible says Lazarus was dead how many days? Four days, four days. Jesus delayed coming so that he could be dead dead so that he says to the people gathered around father I'm praying to you not for my sake but for their sake so that they might what believe and he goes to that tomb and Lazarus and his and his crying relatives and he says take the tomb stone away and they do so, and he says this, authoritative word, Lazarus, come forth. And he does. And he comes waddling out. And he's alive. Remember the old King James Version? Lord, I mean, if you come now, it's too late. By this time, he stinketh. Hey, look, we've already wrapped him up. We've already put the embalming. We've already sort of 
anointed him with all the oil. He's dead, dead. No, he's not. I'm doing this for the glory of God and for your sake so that you might believe that I even can bring new life from the dead. Boy, I tell you, those are seven signs, my friend. Seven signs that are utterly unmistakable. And every single person in this room ought to believe in Jesus the Christ. You know what? Martha does. Look at 11.27. John 11.27. He says, Do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe in new life, Martha? Do you believe that I am Jesus, the one who grants life and the one who judges the living and the dead? Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. This is the true kind of believing. This is the first kind. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even He who comes into the world. Sweet Martha. She got it. She's a believer. And she's going to grow in that belief. And she's going to progress in that belief all the way through. And so is Mary. I mean, she's going to even see him post-tomb. And it's going to be a shock and a surprise. And I thought this was the gardener. And Peter, he's going to deny the Lord. But at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down on him and he preaches. He believes. Yeah, don't get hung up on how much they believe. They're going to get there. And when they do, they're believing as much as believing can be. All right, what about the Jews? I mean, come on. Seven signs. They've got to do it. They've got to believe. Chapter 12. I told you it was that bridge chapter. Oh, this is so sad. And if you're in this crowd today and you're like these people, this is so sad for you. John 12. Verse 34, the crowd answered him, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. In other words, he's going to take over and, and, and undo the Roman oppression. He's going to be our king forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? How can you say he's going to die? Jesus says, I'm telling you, verse 35, for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. But he who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes while you have the light believe in the light so that you may become sons of light believe 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 in me believe in the light these things Jesus spoke and he went away and he hid himself from them why verse 37 oh listen to this verse people but though he had performed so many signs not even just the seven before them yet they were what not believing in him. No. No. Those are people who are going to hell. They're going to hell. And there's a judicial sovereign judgment on them. Verse 38, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet which spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Remember that, Isaiah 53, for this reason they could not believe for Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he's hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. You say, what, what is that? 
They hate Christ. They reject Christ. And there's a sovereign decree on them. And that's why Jesus says, you've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You do not believe. And there is a blinding and hardening. And you will be further blinded and further hardened until it could be confirmed that Isaiah's prophecy is true about you. And Isaiah actually, when he was prophesying that, wasn't talking about the father and the judicial hardening. He was talking about the son for whom the father has given all judgment, the book of John says. And that's why he says in verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, Christ's glory, and he spoke of him. You say, yeah, but, but verse 42 says, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would put, be put out of the synagogue. But verse 43, For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Oh, oh. It's like the man born blind, his parents didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. Therefore, they wouldn't even give a testimony about what Jesus had done for their blind son. I, I plead with you today, and I've gone so far over my time limit. But do you, do you hear the pathos in my voice? I know you've been going through a difficult time, and I know all those things have to be ferreted out. I know that. But should we not, could we not, must we not be involved in the evangelization of the lost and in showing people through our lives, even our love for one another, that we're truly disciples of His and that we're all about kingdom business. Isn't that what we're supposed to be about? Oh, Lord. I hope and pray and I will work for you as will Han Cho to do everything within our power to make sure that you remain intact and that you will not be dissuaded through whatever means and by whatever satanic diversion for that's what he would want for this place to go from this place as a body as a unified body and the difficulty it will take to get there so that you could proclaim this message to a watching world. That's what they desperately need, is it not? And God, in His sovereign providence, in His plan, in His pleasure, for those to whom He is destined to believe from eternity past, they will believe. And he will make them believe by opening their eyes and unstopping their ears so that when you proclaim to them seven signs from the Gospel of John, when you read to them the Scripture, when you encourage them, you read the Gospel of John. You read about these seven signs. Let's get together. Let's talk about that. Friend, family member, neighbor, acquaintance, schoolmate, doesn't matter. Let's get together. Let's go over the Gospel of John. I want to go over seven signs with you and I want to show you the glory of Christ from the Gospel of John. And if they reject you, and if they say, I don't want to talk to you anymore, then you move on to someone else. And eventually, by God's good grace and by your joy, 
someone that God is leading you to, you'll be used to bring them to a conscious awareness of true believing. And you'll rejoice and you'll say, I sort of like this evangelization stuff. Probably so many of you have already been involved in seeing this come to pass and it motivates you and it gets your heart going and it really pumps your blood because you say, I'm living for something. I have reason to live. I have motivation to grow and learn and change. This is my life. This is what I do. This is who I am. doesn't mean that you're a baker, you're a banker, or a candlestick maker. doesn't matter. doesn't matter if you're a preacher. All of us, preacher with a capital P, small p, doesn't matter. We evangelize the lost for the sake of people seeing these seven signs and coming to true belief in Jesus the Christ. You say, well, what about those people that reject us? What about those people that say no? What about those people that have been, have been seeing us witness to them for years and years and years? I don't know. Only God knows. I don't know what the ju judicial hardening is for them. I don't know. Only God knows. I just keep witnessing to all of those who will hear me. And for those who reject, and for those who ultimately reject, and for those who say, I don't get it, I don't understand it, I don't like your Jesus, I don't want him, I don't believe in the seven signs, and I'm going to die in my sins, or I'm going to take this other religion... They didn't see because they were judicially prevented from seeing. And they didn't believe because out of their utter disbelief, God said, I warned you, I warned you, I warned you, you will die in your sins. That's why Jesus said to the very Jew, you don't know me, you don't know my father, I know you, and I know your father, and he's the devil, and you will die in your sins. And you say, that just sounds so incredibly harsh. Well, it may sound harsh, but it is true, and the most loving thing to tell somebody is where they're headed. Lovingly, graciously, with great patience, and if they ultimately reject, then you let God be the determiner of where their destiny might be, where it is, and where it's planned to be. Let's bow our heads, and as we bow, I ask, Heavenly Father, with as passionate a plea as I can. But if there's anyone here who may have initially believed, who somewhat believes, who's been hanging around because they see others who believe, but who've never consciously, as an act of their will, with a resolve to truly turn from their sin, to repent from their wicked way of life, that at this time, at this hour, at this moment, they would place their confidence and trust in no one else and in nothing else than the person of Jesus the Christ, who did perform these signs but not for signs in and of themselves but for what those signs represent that there is new wine to be drunk there's a new temple for whom we worship not for what we worship or where we worship and there's a there's a a new hope 
that before we die, we can cling to Christ. And there's a, there's a new man. All of us are spiritually paralyzed and cannot respond on our own. And we need Jesus to restore our limbs, the limbs of our heart and our mind to believe, to truly believe. And to have new food, to have the true bread coming out of heaven. To eat of his flesh and to drink of his blood. That is, to believe in his death and his burial and his resurrection from the dead. And to have new sight. To have our eyes open to the truth of the gospel. And to have new resurrection life in the form and by the power of the resurrected Christ himself. And to be like Martha, to be truly believing that he is the Son of God, the Christ the promised one, the redeemer, the savior. And not to be like those who even after Jesus performed not seven, but likely 700 or 7,000, so much so that the books of the world couldn't contain them all. Who nevertheless say, I don't believe, I reject. Oh Lord, don't let anyone reject this message today. Thank you for the inestimable patience of this people to hear me for this long and to receive your message through me to them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.